Session six of Capital and Interest by Frederick Bastiat. Read by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Capital and Interest, Section six on Leisure. And here we have a glimpse of one of the finest harmonies in the social world. I allude to leisure. Not that leisure that the warlike and tyrannical classes arrange for themselves by the plunder of the workers, but that leisure which is the lawful and innocent fruit of past activity and economy. In expressing myself thus, I know that I shall shock many received ideas. But see, is not leisure an essential spring in the social machine? Without it, the world would never have had a Newton, a Pascal, a Fenelon, Mankind would have been ignorant of all arts, sciences, and of those wonderful inventions prepared originally by investigations of mere curiosity. Thought would have been inert. Man would have made no progress. On the other hand, if leisure could only be explained by plunder and oppression, if it were a benefit which could only be enjoyed unjustly and at the expense of others, there would be no middle path between these two evils, either mankind would be reduced to the necessity of stagnating in a vegetable and stationary life in eternal ignorance from the absence of wheels to its machine or else it would have to acquire these wheels at a price of inevitable injustice and would necessarily present the sad spectacle in one form or other of the antique classification of human beings into masters and slaves I defy anyone to show me, in this case, any other alternative. We should be compelled to contemplate the divine plan which governs society with the regret of thinking that it presents a deplorable chasm. The stimulus of progress would be forgotten, or, which is worse, this stimulus would be no other than injustice itself. But no, God has not left such a chasm in his work of love. We must take care not to disregard his wisdom and power, for those whose imperfect meditations cannot explain the lawfulness of leisure are very much like the astronomer who said, at a certain point in the heavens there ought to exist a planet which will be at last discovered, for without it the celestial world is not harmony but discord. Well, I say that, if well understood, the history of my humble plain, although very modest, is sufficient to raise us to the contemplation of one of the most consoling but least understood of the social harmonies. It is not true that we must choose between the denial or the unlawfulness of leisure. Thanks to rent and its natural duration, leisure may arise from labor and saving. It is a pleasing prospect which every one may have in view, a noble recompense to which each may aspire. It makes its appearance in the world, it distributes itself proportionately to the exercise of certain virtues, it opens all the avenues to intelligence, it ennobles, it raises the morals, it spiritualizes the soul of humanity, not only without laying any weight on those of our brethren whose lot in life devotes them to severe labor, but relieving them gradually from the heaviest and most repugnant part of this labor. It is enough that capitals should be formed, accumulated, multiplied, should be lent on conditions less and less burdensome, 
that they should descend, penetrate into every social circle, and that by an admirable progression, after having liberated the lenders, they should hasten the liberation of the borrowers themselves. For that end, the laws and customs ought to be favorable to economy, the source of capital. It is enough to say that the first of all these conditions is not to alarm, to attack, to deny that which is the stimulus of saving and the reason of its existence. Interest. As long as we see nothing passing from hand to hand in the character of loan, but provisions, materials, instruments, things indispensable to the productiveness of labor itself, the ideas thus far exhibited would not find many opponents. Who knows even that I may not be reproached for having made a great effort to burst what may be said to be an open door. But, as soon as cash makes its appearance as the subject of the transaction, and it is this which appears almost always, immediately a crowd of objections are raised. Money, it will be said, will not reproduce itself like your sack of corn. It does not assist labor like your plane. It does not afford an immediate satisfaction like your house. It is incapable by its nature of producing interest, of multiplying itself, and the remuneration it demands is a positive extortion. Who cannot see the sophistry of this? Who does not see that cash is only a transient form which men give at the time to other values, to real objects of usefulness, for the sole object of facilitating their arrangements? In the midst of social complications, the man who is in a condition to lend scarcely ever has the exact thing which the borrower wants. James, it is true, has a plane, but perhaps William wants a saw. They cannot negotiate. The transaction favorable to both cannot take place. And then what happens? It happens that James first exchanges his plane for money. He lends the money to William, and William exchanges the money for a saw. The transaction is no longer a simple one. It is decomposed into two parts, as I explained above in speaking of exchange. But for all that, it has not changed its nature. It still contains all the elements of a direct loan. James has still got rid of a tool which was useful to him. William has still received an instrument which perfects his work and increases his profits. There is still a service rendered by the lender, which entitles him to receive an equivalent service from the borrower. This just balance is not the less established by free mutual bargaining. The very natural obligation to restore at the end of the term the entire value still constitutes the principle of the duration of interest. At the end of a year, says Monsieur Thoré, will you find an additional crown in a bag of a hundred pounds? No, certainly, if the borrower puts the bag of one hundred pounds on the shelf. In such a case, neither the plane nor the sack of corn would reproduce themselves. But it is not for the sake of leaving the money in the bag, nor the plane on the hook, that they are borrowed. The plane is borrowed to be used, or the money to procure a plane. And if it is clearly proved that this tool enables the borrower to obtain profits, which he would not have made without it, if it is proved that the lender has renounced creating for himself this excess of profits, 
we may understand how the stipulation of a part of this excess of profits in favor of the lender is equitable and lawful. End of section six. Leisure.